Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Ann Alexander to our show. Dr. Alexandra is the Vice Provost at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, Wyoming. Hi, Ann. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Yeah, thanks for asking me, Dave. This is great. Well, tell me first about the University of Wyoming and also why students select your institution. Yeah, absolutely. So the University of Wyoming, which we lovingly call UW, uh, no disrespect to any others, but ours is the best UW, um, but it's the only four-year doctoral institution in the state of Wyoming, um, and we're located in Laramie, which is in the southeast part of the state. Um, we're a land grant, um, but because we're the only four-year doctoral granting institution in the state, um, we're also the flagship. Uh, we're mm. basically the fleet. Um, so we have really strong partnerships with our community colleges uh, as well. Um, we are extremely committed at UW to the access part of our land-grant mission, as well as the entire land-grant mission. Um, so we try to keep tuition as absolutely affordable as possible, and um, that makes us one of the greatest values for your money uh, when it comes to selecting a, uh, a university. Um, our students receive a world-class uh, education from incredible, talented faculty. Um, it's a small town. Laramie's about 30,000 people. We're nestled in the Rocky Mountains, so there's lots of wonderful outdoor opportunities. Um, and we have very small class sizes. Um, about 15 to 1 is the faculty-student ratio. And um, we have the largest study abroad uh, scholarship endowment in the country. Um, so a large number of our students are able to choose to do that if they would like to. Um, and it's a really just a friendly place. Wyoming is a very kind of flat hierarchy state and um, that's reflected in our university as well. So you get to know, as a student, you get to know your professors really well. You get to know the presidents, you get to know everybody uh, that's anybody. And so it's a really wonderful place. Well, what's new at the university? Oh, we've got a number of things going on. A couple of things I'll highlight are, um, as far as our faculty research goes, we've got a group of faculty interdisciplinary group that has been um, working on a big game migration mapping project for the past uh, several years. And that's extremely innovative. We're able to figure out where a lot of our um, big game is going, where they're overwintering, where there may be um, barriers to their migration so landowners can respond accordingly. Um, we just opened a firearms research center, um, which is housed in our College of Law. That's a brand new baby center that's going to um, help produce you know, scholarship and students who are well-versed in, in firearms law. Um, and we have a real focus uh, on academic success for both our students and faculty. Um, we stood up a couple of years ago during the pandemic, a program called Cowboy Coaching, which is a peer mentoring program. Um, and we launched a new program last year um, that's kind of a week zero program called Saddle Up. 
Um, it is for our incoming first year students, and it's an academic preparation experience that um, all of our incoming students go through. And um, that's a new initiative that is, we have a lot of excitement around. Oh, good. That's that that does seem pretty exciting. Um, is there any new programs in the future that you might be looking at down the road? Um, so the university recently established a school of computing, um, and that is currently being incubated in our College of Engineering and Physical Sciences. But um, they are really um, hitting the ground running and establishing a number of really interesting degree programs software engineering and um, a, a, a really interdisciplinary approach to computing as well uh, in another one of the programs that they propose. So that's something to look for from us. Oh, exciting. So can you talk a little bit about yourself and the path that led you to become the vice, the vice provost there? Absolutely. Um, so I came to the University of Wyoming as a graduate student to study for my PhD in economics. Um, and a couple of years after completing um, our dean of business got swiped by somebody else, as happens a lot, uh, and um, we had an interim dean, and all of the associate deans retired at the same time, and so he kind of was just looking around, and somehow I caught 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 his eye as far as maybe having some potential, so I was um, his assistant dean um, for a couple years. Um, I've been the undergraduate coordinator for the economics department. I took a professional leave to be a AAAS science and technology policy fellow at the Department of State. And when I came back from that, uh, I headed up our international and global programs for the university. Um, I then transitioned to being the vice provost for undergraduate education. Um, my swan song there was going to be that I was going to help us, lead, I was going to lead us through our reaffirmation of accreditation from the Higher Learning Commission, HLC. And we did that in the fall of 2019, got the notification in early spring 2020. I was going to transition back over to the College of Business, be an associate dean, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then the pandemic happened and we got a new president and the provost stepped down and apparently I didn't duck fast enough when the president was looking around for an interim. <laughs> so I uh, had the very interesting and extreme honor, I would say, of serving as the interim provost during the pandemic. Um, once our new provost came in 2021, uh, he asked that I stay around for a couple of years to help him um, sort of acclimate to UW, but also to launch our strategic plan and bring that to fruition, as well as launching several new initiatives like our new advising platform, this Saddle Up program I mentioned. Um, and so uh, I also do quite a lot of sort of other duties as assigned. I've been recently named as the co-chair of the chat GPT AI committee working group where we're supposed to come up with some great recommendations for how faculty can um, work with this technology and what kinds of things they might ask uh, students to do and what might go in their syllabi and things like that. So other duties as assigned, unless some horrible thing happens in the next few months, I'm finally planning the transition back to the College of Business at the end of this academic year. So we'll see what happens. 
Yeah, I, I I know a lot of people who say that, and then they never seem to ever get to go back to where they thought they were <laughs> going to go back to. So I might give you a call in a few months to find out if that actually happened or not. Um, what's been the proudest moments for you at the university? Well, I would say um, the community on campus really comes together whenever there's a crisis. Um, and the most, you know, sort of recent example of that, of course, was our response to COVID. Um, our faculty just absolutely um, gave their all to make the flip, the very emergency oriented flip to online work and to help um, our students navigate the access to, to technology. It's a very rural state and it's complex and some of our rural areas are more remote areas to get access to even 4G, um, at, let alone Wi-Fi. I myself live in the country and I didn't have very reliable access to Wi-Fi until um, Starlink came along. Um, so, but they really, really gave their all. Um, our maker spaces and labs flipped to making PPE and hand sanitizer. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are similar stories all across the country, but again, we're such a small community that everybody really pitches in. Um, our health sciences colleagues became COVID testers and then vaccinators. Um, we had a group in our economics department that helped study um, ways to help people feel less hesitant about vaccines. Um, it really felt like we pulled together. And I've seen this many times over the years in Wyoming, whenever we have a, a tragedy or a crisis. Um, one of my friends calls this Wyoming sweetness. Um, people give their all for their neighbors and they expect nothing in return. So that's one of the most amazing things about this place. Oh, very neat. You know, I, I since I'm in Montana, I can imagine just like how Wyoming had to handle the the access to the internet and everything else when you were trying to do online. How how what did you do to to try to meet some of those needs? Well, our IT department um, spent uh, a great deal of time gathering information from students who might not who did not have access to laptops or other kind of computing um, technology, and they shipped laptops <laughs> to people who needed them. They didn't do like a, oh, are they really lying? Do they really need it? They didn't care. They were just like, you need a computer here. And now they've swapped that program over to a, a rent a laptop, which it's it's actually just borrow. It's not rent. You don't pay anything. Um, so they just shipped those out to everybody as quickly as they could. Um, then we also worked with our extension because we're land grant. Of course, we have an extension unit and the extension units. So they're located in every county across the state. And sometimes there's two even. And they took their extension facilities and just pumped up the volume on the Wi-Fi so people could come is not the greatest long-term solution, but it's a nice solution for emergencies where people people could come to the parking lot of the extension mm -hmm. center and and do their work and upload their homework or listen to the, the podcast or the Zoom or whatever the professor had done. Um, we also had, um, I had a, a great video sent to me by um, our agriculture Life Sciences and Natural or Natural Resources College um, of a, one of our students who was in um, his tractor 
um, which apparently are quite kitted out, uh, the one that this kid had, and it had Wi-Fi in it. So that's where he was doing all his work. He would go help his dad, and then he'd just take the tractor and do his homework or listen to the to the Zoom lecture. So um, it, was, it was pretty tricky, but it really laid bare that um, not just uh, – it's not just a universal access thing, right? We don't have universal access to technology in this country, um, let alone in in rural America. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, let me let me follow up a little bit on that. Is you know, what do you think has been learned about online education since the pandemic, and how do you see this platform evolving for both faculty and students? Yeah, I think a couple things that we learned. Again, the technology access is critical. Um, if we're going to expand access to this this modality um, and quality standards and making technology easy, um, not just, not, yes, accessible, but also easy, that's paramount. Um, it can't just be a free for all. Um, you know, of course, in the pandemic, we had to respond quickly. And so people who had never, ever, ever even tried using their course shell before, suddenly were using them quite, quite a lot. But um, they just had to do it. And so not every class was thoughtfully designed because they didn't have time to. Right. Um, and that wasn't really what it what it was about. I mean, I think asynchronous delivery of, of online programs is um, really great for professionals, adult learners, people who may have children, jobs, responsibilities. Um, I don't know if it works. Asynchronous aspects of online doesn't work as well for our traditional undergraduates, I think, um, mostly because they just don't have the experience um, to to sort of keep the disciplined approach that you need um, as opposed to adult learners. Yeah. Um, I think we'll see an emphasis as well on programs rather than classes. I think at least here at UW, we had a, a pretty big pile in of people developing online classes because um, it, quite frankly, they could bring in money, they could bring in students, um, but it was more about classes than about programs. And I think we need to focus more on that. Um, using high quality standards to make sure that the outcomes, um, including grades and, and graduation rates are the same across face-to-face um, -face and online. Good. Uh, what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an academic leader so far? Hmm. Well, this will be kind of a stream of consciousness, but um, I think um, I'm a very organized person. Like I have a plan. I have, I use every cap. My outlook pings at me all the time. I have a, a, a hard copy planner. Um, I try to, you know, set goals not just at the beginning of every year, but quarterly, monthly, weekly. And so, um, but that doesn't mean I come into work with a to-do list that has to be done um, because we know that we also have to be flexible and empathetic, right? So um, these kinds of positions, you technically are reporting to one person, but we're also reporting to our colleagues across campus, our faculty colleagues, um, students, parents, legislators, trustees. Um, and so we have to be responsive and accountable to them. Um, I think you also have to really bring your whole self to work. Um, but then on the flip side, you also have to let your whole self go home. <laughs> um, there are times, of course, when that's not possible, like, like during pandemics, but, um, 
you need to um, get out of that urgency trap just because something sounds urgent. Uh, you need to learn that fine art of distinguishing urgent from important and strategic. If all you do all day and into the night um, uh, is address things that are urgent and, and have, you know, like I, you know, this thing is with an exclamation point on the email, um, the, progress towards strategy and goals for the institution doesn't happen. So of course we have to attend to urgent matters, but we also have to prioritize well or else we get burned out. And I mentioned, you know, bring your whole self to work, but also bring your whole self home. Once you get home, don't write to your team, particularly if you're in a position of authority, writing emails on weekends at seven o'clock or nine o'clock at night, um, while you're on vacation, uh, those kinds of things, they send signals to people that that's how they have to act too. And that I think is partially contributing to the extreme burnout of our staff and faculty that they feel like they have to be on all the time. We have to model um, taking that vacation. We have to model not asking for things on a Friday afternoon unless Senator so-and-so has sent you an email and they need this by the end of the day. Um, but don't abuse that. Remember that people um, have lives and they're whole humans. And if we take care of their whole health and well-being, then they can take care of the whole health and well-being of our students. You know, I, I don't have a lot of academic leaders that actually say that sometimes. And that's so that's so nice to hear because I even know from my experience as a dean and as an associate dean, just pick any level, I've got a lot of emails on weekends. And so you feel obligated, you feel you feel obligated. You know, so I remember a couple of times I was getting ready to go camping. You know, we're driving. It's just like, but you, you do, you you engage because since they've engaged with you, you feel so obligated to engage back instead of just going on Monday. Hey, by the way, I was out of town. You know, yeah. uh, that's a yeah. great, uh, great recommendation. And we have tools in these, in these, in these things, in these computers, in Outlook, you can schedule a, um, an email to go out later. So if you want to get it off your chest or not forget that you want to ask this thing, you can, but if somebody doesn't need to do it, that day on that Saturday, before you go camping, don't ask. Yeah, It's an asynchronous piece of uh, technology, right? Email is. And so um, people can't expect that it, they're going to get instantaneous responses. And we as leaders have to model that, I think. Yeah, yeah great. Yeah. Well, what do you think are the major challenges that universities will mm -hmm. face over the next five years? Oh, you probably hear the same kinds of answers here every time, but I think probably the top, top 10 list or top five list are um, our demography, right? We have a, a population that's um, of college of traditionally college age students going to um, going to be coming up. Um, continued social tensions are are a big challenge, I think, for higher ed, and skepticism about the value of higher education. Um, and I think we, you know, to that last point, I think we really do need to take seriously what people are. Um, expressing with that concern, which is that um, we have a, you know, there's been this drumbeat over the past three or four years that higher ed was built on this model of great model, right, to um, to address the industrial revolution and the need for managers and workers and 
the need to learn the new sciences uh, in agriculture and engineering and and other areas, but um, but we don't live in the industrial revolution <laughs> anymore. Uh, we are in. Um, we need to help prepare our students to be humans that thrive in a technology-powered world. And some of what we do is definitely already there, but we need to probably rethink it because I think that's really the crux of where people wonder whether value whether the value of higher education is real. Um, I mean, we have extremely low student debt at our, you know, only only about 35% of our students even need to take out a federal student loan. Um, we have an extremely generous state scholarship program called the Hathaway program. So, but you still hear people questioning the time investment. And I think we need to take that seriously. Yeah, that's a good point. And since you mentioned uh, traditional students, let me kind of uh, change that a little bit and say, let's talk about the non-traditional students. So, you know, sometimes we see them struggle a little bit more at a traditional college or university. So what can be done or what are you doing to to meet the needs of those specific students? Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in first adopting as an institution a, a student ready mindset. You know, for so long as academics, we've been so focused on um, or lamenting <laughs> student preparation coming into the institution. Um, but doing that doesn't change anything, right? We have to meet students where they are. And given their life experience, we have to meet them where they are. Um, so we need to focus on how we prepare for our students rather than the other way around. Um, for post-traditional students, um, that includes the fact that they have more experience in the world. Um, they may be in need of upskilling. They may have had to stop out and they're coming back. Um, they may be just, I want to change my entire trajectory of my life and I need some micro credentials. I need some, um, some certifications that show a new skill that's going to be really employable. So we have to, we have to, I think that's really where the market, if you will, is shifting, right? We still have traditionally aged students who want to come to universities, but that population is starting to, to fall. And that population is also um, a lot more skeptical about the value. I think people who are, who are non-traditional adult learners have much more experience and they also have a stronger sense of the value of, of the education that they're getting. Um, but to meet them where they are, we have to make sure we recognize their challenges, right? We or their the things that might make it more difficult for them. They can't just come to campus and spend eight hours here and then go home. They have jobs, they have lives, they have kids, they have families. Um, so we need to think about what kinds of childcare options we can provide. We need to think about flexible schedules for programs. We need to make sure there's enough parking for them. Um, and um, importantly, we need to make sure that our online options are well aligned with what they need and what they want. Um, so they also need an opportunity to connect with their peers if they want to, right? That's a, but they don't want to join student government. Maybe some of them, some of them might, but most of them are, they're not going to go join the um, the young Republicans or the any you know, the paintball club, they're not going to do that. They they would like probably some more um, formal connections with people like them that look like them, that feel like them, that have their same kind of background, um, just like all the rest of us. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, what do you think opportunities will look like for higher ed institutions in the future? 
Um, I really think that building the ladder of access for minoritized populations and post-traditional students, the adult learner, um, so that they can achieve their achieve their dreams is really the where we need to be focusing. Um, they need livelihoods that bring them joy and stability and happiness. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, you know, there are people who need um, to upskill for their profession or they need their profession is um, changing greatly. So they need to retool or they need to move to a completely different kind of, of track in life. Um, they just need a leg up. Um, we have a lot of people not just in Wyoming, but nationwide, um, who are really close to completion or they got through a year or two and then they just couldn't afford it anymore or they needed, you know, life happened and something meant that they needed to go do something else. Um, that population really is something that we need to pay. There are people we need to pay attention to. Um, and part of how we do that is recognizing that their professional experience can count for something when it comes to academics. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really frustrating when I've seen students who, who just need a little bit more time, but they've, they've stopped out and they're stuck. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you know, what, what, what can we do? And, uh, and there's no, and they have work experience and it just seems they can't get credit for the work experience or whatever. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just so frustrating. It's, if we go back to, well, this is how it was, you know, 30 years ago. Well, yeah, but this is way different. So. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. We need to acknowledge. I mean, the world has changed so much just in the past 20 years. We have to acknowledge it. And those students are the ones that need our probably our support and um, assistance the most. And embracing and acknowledging the experiences they bring to us. Uh, that's that's priceless. We should really be thinking more broadly about that. Yeah, good point. Um what suggestions do you have to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion at colleges and universities? Boy, this is not something I'm an expert in for sure, but I would say I do know that the heavy lifting of diversity, equity, inclusion, justice is um, it's done by our minority and minoritized colleagues um, for the most part. Um, and they, of course, likely have the most expertise. And so that's why. But um, this puts a burden on them that they're often uncompensated for in any way. Right. Money or banks wise. Um, so we need to start thinking about how we address that. The number of shoulders upon which this work is done needs to expand, but it has to be done carefully in a way so that um, the they are not sidelined or marginalized even further. Right. So. I'm not sure what the solution is other than to continue to expand the pipeline of access and opportunity to everybody and build a community on our campuses uh, and on our campus in particular um, that emphasizes belonging and inclusion and call out behavior and systems that make people feel like they don't belong because higher education is supposed to be, we're supposed to be a dream factory. We're supposed to be a dream factory for everyone. So despite, you know, despite years and years of, of this being a thorny challenge, I think a lot of it comes down to having um, conversations one person at a time and really calling out people or maybe just even policies and processes that are unintentionally, but nevertheless, um, a barrier for, for DEI. Well, you know, a lot of universities right now are focusing their attention on the mental health of students. What can campuses do to tackle this problem better? 
this is uh, this is the the challenge of our generation right now, I think. Um, and it's students, faculty, and staff who are all feeling this. Um, there are a couple things I think campuses can do, and a couple things I know we're working on right now. Um, most of our student, uh, sorry, student affairs and student health professionals have gone through um, a program called Mental Health First Aid. It's free. And um, it is a really great program that we're now going to expand out to the rest of campus for access because mental health, um, working in this space, we, we're working in it now, whether we want to be or not, um, but we're not, I'm not, a, I'm an economist. I'm not going to diagnose anything. I cannot treat acute or um, clinical uh, depression or anxiety. Um, but I do need to know how to listen and provide resources to people. And everybody on campus needs to know how to do that. And that's what mental health first aid does. Um, we've invested quite a bit in um, mindfulness programming. This is, um, I think, a really important thing, particularly for our students, because that is one way to really buy, buy themselves if they're not in like I said, clinical or, you know, a medical, a medical diagnosis of uh, chronic depression, um, they can use mindfulness to help them, help them, <laughs> they help them calm their minds and focus what, what they need to focus on and, and, and bring everything back into perspective. We all need to do that. Um, I was telling somebody earlier this morning, I love all of our programs that do things like puppy play dates and so on. Those are great. A lot of our faculty and staff who have access to those as well as the students often say, I don't have, I want to do that. I don't have time. Um, and they're burned out and they're up to here in capacity. So part of what we also need to do is recognize that um, those things are important. You know, the goat yoga and so on is important to have access to that, but we also need to give people time and space um, to actually do their jobs daily, but then also to be reflective, to be mindful, to go to Puppy Play Date if they want to. Um, I think another <laughs> another thing that, that is really important for us to, to think about is tapping into the expertise of our health sciences colleagues at our institutions. Um, I mentioned that we I just bring in the strategic plan to fruition here, finalizing that. And part of that is consulting with various colleagues across campus on implementation. And the College of Health Sciences, when it came to the mental health question, were like, we know how to help, let us help. And so there are some really interesting conversations happening, happening around that. And it's not to add more to their workload, but to find ways to tap that expertise and make that count towards their workload um, because they know how to help people who are uh, even just stressed out, uh, let alone a mental health crisis. You know, um, at my age, I remember, and or let's just even go back 10 years, but you know, a lot of, a lot of people my age was kind of brought up with not ever speaking about mental health. You know, you're supposed to mm -hmm. pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It seems like, Today's students that are coming out of high school going into college don't worry about that that view, that negative view. They seem to almost expect something to be there, or at least they're more willing to talk about their problems. Am, am I correct on that? Absolutely. 
um, there is there is a definite generational shift in, um, frankly, shame around mental health challenges. Um, I think that 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 has always been a real issue for students. That, like you said, just even saying, "I feel," maybe they'd say, "I feel stressed," but that would be as far as they would go. Um, they might even hide it. And in some cases, you know, there there might have been a pretty good reason for that because some of the policies um, at um, various universities were if you identified yourself as needing help, they might put you on an administrative leave. They might they might say you can't come to school next year. So as you know, our students, I think the traditionally aged students now do not see mental health as any kind of stigma. I think they see it far less as a stigma and therefore we need to adapt to them. And, um, and that includes our policies. Well, here's a fun question. If you had any extra budget money right now with no strings attached, how would you spend it? I would give all of the faculty and staff a raise. <laughs> well, you, you just made a lot of points whether your faculty and staff are saying that that's for sure. <laughs> That's a that's a tough question, but I always am interested if you know if if you needed money uh, for funding new projects there for buildings, you know whatever. So yeah. I'm glad to see that you mentioned really what it counts, which is faculty and staff really run the place. Mm -hmm. They do. If it had to be for a project, um, we've been talking with a, a famous vendor um, about potentially distributing a technology to every student when they come in so we can really level the playing field when it comes to access to technology. We've heard some really sort of heartbreaking stories from students who come um, and they don't have um, graduation money to spend on a laptop or they don't have um, anything, you know, they buy a $40 job at Walmart and then they it works so poorly that they can't upload their assignments. They're sharp as tacks. They're brilliant. They're going to rule the world, but they're going to fail an assignment because they're because they couldn't afford a good laptop. So that would be another thing I would probably push is trying to make sure we level the playing field when it comes to the tools and technology for our students. Oh, that's, that's a good idea. Um, last question. Do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really love Radical Candor by Kim mm. Scott. Um, it really inspired me during my interim gig, and I think it's absolutely on point for any any leader. Um, and funnily enough, I don't know if I just thought of this because it's Christmas and I listen to it every Christmas. I listen to the audible version of it, but I also find A Christmas Carol has some good leadership um, in it. Uh Bear with me, I swear. Um, there are a couple of things about it. So it, the scene where Scrooge was looking at his window after Marley leaves, and he sees some of his old acquaintances who are now ghosts floating around out there, and they're all lamenting that they can't help people now because they couldn't, they didn't help people when they were alive. Um, that always reminds me of you know what John Wesley said, which is you know, do all the good that you can with what you have where you are for as long as you can. And they, you know, so I always think I don't want to be that ghost <laughs> down the line. And um, there's also the part where he's walking abroad with the Christmas, the spirit of Christmas present and the spirit of Christmas present shows him, you know, the things we all remember, which is uh, 
his clerk's house uh, with Tiny Tim and his nephew. But he also shows him miners and um, people, uh, sailors and people in lighthouses and people in hospitals. And the whole point is that he says um, uh, anywhere where the vein hand of man has not closed fast this door to my spirit, I will visit. And basically when, when you keep that heart open, this lovely man comes and visits you, right? Um, you don't know that he's there, but you feel a little bit better. You feel more, a little more jolly. Um, but I think what he really shows Scrooge is that every person has a story and every person is worthy. And it's, easy when you come into work with a long to-do list or a whole bunch of meetings to forget that every person that you're interacting with has a story, worries, family, um, may have just had the worst day of their life. We have to just keep that in mind. Everybody has a story and everybody is worthy. And so Charles Dickens, bless his soul, taught me that (laughs) among many other people, but I think uh, he's a great writer. So Well, Anne, thanks so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Same here, Dave. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And you have a great weekend. You too. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.